Well, hello, gentlemen. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's always good to see you, John and Todd. Um, I know that uh, John is, see, he uses that background to keep him stealth. He loves to, you know, travel, but he doesn't want people knowing where he is. So that background makes it look like, eh, he's in a hangar. Guess what? We know better. John, are you even here in the United States? Yes, I am. And maybe next week we'll do a podcast from Denver because I'm probably going to be up in Denver. Oh, great. I better warn everyone, including all the young ladies here. Trouble is arising. <laughs> you, got, you got the bag of bail money? I do have that bag of bail money in the safe, John. So I am prepared. Yep. It's, right, it's right from Parker Games, right? Monopoly money. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, uh, it's always good to be with you guys for another episode. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, Pama and Avemco Insurance. And John, that's usually your role before we get this show started. Yes. So I want to remind everybody that this, this uh, show is brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. That's PAMA.org. If you want to look them up, if you're any mechanics out there. And it's also brought to you by Avemco Insurance, the premium insurer of general aviation aircraft, as well as pilots that want to rent airplanes and flight instructors that need insurance. It's basically everything there is around general aviation aircraft operations from how loss on upward. And uh, I know from watching them in action out in, in uh, at Oshkosh, they're first-class people to deal with and knowledgeable about airplanes. And he, they have many pilots on their staff and even the non-pilot members are pretty knowledgeable, which we found out while we were there is because they fly their simulators. So even though they're not pilots, they get to go out and practice in the simulator that's right in their own building. Yeah. So that helps them understand what their customers need. And as I said, I listened to them talk to, over the days that we were there, listened to them talk to many, many customers. Todd and I both did. We listened to them. And uh, a very impressive group of folks. Great. Well, we, you know, it is one of those things where we appreciate the fact that the Vemco stands behind us. Uh, we don't hitch our wagon to just anybody, and uh, we're, we're very appreciative of the fact that both PAMA and Abemco uh, support us wholeheartedly with, uh, with this show and what we try to do with this show. With that being said, of course, insurance rates will continue to go up if we keep crashing airplanes, and it has been another busy uh, time for general aviation accidents. Um, there was a recent uh, beach sundowner out of West Virginia that from early information, because the accident just happened within a couple of days of us recording this show. Um, so there's not a lot of information, but from what I can tell, and I'm familiar with that airport in that area because I flew it when I, uh, when I was living in Maryland full time. Um, it, it is, uh, it's not a challenging airport per se, but in Fayetteville, or Fayette, West Virginia, um, with a beach sundowner. And if you got three guys on board, which apparently there were, because there was three fatalities 
from what I could tell, the airplane uh, descended into the woods right after takeoff. The airplane looks relatively intact, but uh, somebody has pulled a lot of the contents of the airplane out there. It looks like camping gear or hunting gear or something. So, of course, as an investigator, you, you immediately go to, okay, what kind of experience did this pilot have? It's hard to tell. The, the, apparent, uh, the pilot in command had a private pilot certificate with an instrument rating um, and a recent issuance date. And again, we've talked about that in previous shows, John, where you can't really go on the FAA's website and know exactly what was issued when. Uh, we just know that there was a, a recent issuance. But that being said, of course, a sundowner, how much, how much uh, time did this pilot have? How much experience did he have with this particular airplane? And of course, the beach sundowner is a solid airplane under certain circumstances. So aircraft performance will definitely be one of those issues that the, uh, the NTSB will looking, uh, be looking at. Besides, whether or not the airplane had a mechanical malfunction or failure since the accident did occur shortly after takeoff. Um, you know, density altitude. Yeah, it was a warm day on the East Coast. Um, that could have had some adverse effect on, uh, on aircraft performance. And what a lot of pilots don't know, especially flying on the East Coast, is that humidity increases density altitude and has an effect on performance. So those are the kinds of issues I, I would expect the NTSB to be looking at just based on, you know, the obvious information from news media reports and pictures. Um, there was another accident involving a um, Piper Arrow in Page, Arizona. It appears that the, uh, the pilot and his wife uh, were flying into Page, Arizona at night. Uh, the airplane struck the, apparently the top of uh, the uh, a ridge line or at least the plateau approaching the airport at night, um, both fatal. The airplane, again, looked relatively intact. So the question is going to be, uh, you know, what was going on as far as maneuvering for the approach? Were they flying in a dark hole or what we call a black hole effect? Um, did they have uh, some sort of visual illusion? Did they get too low on the approach too early? Um, early indications in some of the pictures show that the flaps were up, so the airplane wasn't necessarily or possibly wasn't uh, configured yet for landing. So, of course, maneuvering um, will be a big issue, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the other factors, mechanical malfunction or failure. And, um, and then, of course, the, uh, the physiological uh, factors with the pilot. Was he capable of, uh, of controlling the airplane? Uh, was he in a health issue and things like that? So, uh, again, we, we lost two more people with that. And then there was a two-fatal accident uh, of a beach bonanza up in Montana. Uh, apparently, it was a husband and wife and their son. The son survived serious injury, but uh, the uh, husband and wife were fatalities. And again, there's not a lot of information since the accident happened uh, recently. The NTSB hasn't come out with a prelim yet, but again, um, it's in close proximity to an airport. There was a takeoff or a landing, mechanical malfunction and failure uh, of the aircraft, of course, is always a prominent issue to be examined in these accidents. Um, but then again, it's the operational issues. What was the pilot doing? What were they trying to accomplish on either the takeoff or the landing? And, um, and so 
again, we lost two more. And so when you start looking at the number of fatal accidents we've had, not only in the last week, but in this past month, the month of September, uh, the numbers are very disconcerting. And, and both uh, you and Todd and I have had a discussion about these fatalities. I'm concerned with flight instruction accidents, which continue to occur. And I'm tracking some information looking for common denominators. And I know that, you know, <laughs> we talk about this on the show, John, and you end every show um, encouraging pilots to do good pre-flight planning and, and pre-flight inspections and stuff. And it's just uh, of concern um, with some of these accidents, degraded skills, you know, yeah, we can find an excuse for degraded skills. Uh, the fact that, you know, a lot of people haven't flown because of COVID, uh, they're getting back in the airplane. Are they really, you know, up to snuff with just picking up where they left off? Um, are these guys getting any kind of recurrent training to get them back in the saddle so that uh, they can stay ahead of the airplane if the problem does arise? I mean, all of these things, we're constantly looking at it, um, at least from our perspective, to try and talk about it on the show to give back to our audience. But as an accident investigator, I'm immediately thinking, okay, what is going on here? And is it something that I'm going to see as a trend in some of the accidents that I'm working, which I picked up another three accidents, uh, very prominent accidents uh, that hopefully at some point I'll be able to talk about uh, well after uh, litigation has been completed. But they have a lot of learning lessons for um, the aviation industry, not only with pilots, but maintenance and, and actually operators as well. So it's just very, very disconcerting that I'm, um, I'm seeing and, and we're all tracking these, uh, these accidents. Yes, I've been, I've been going back through a, a number of the accident sites and amassing a group of, of uh, raw data for the accidents to take a look to see uh, if there's any, and I already found several, uh, that would be newsworthy for the show. Uh, maybe newsworthy, not the right thing to say, but provide uh, some information that could be a benefit to our listeners. But, boys, the numbers are getting scary. And to that end, uh, last week, I, I contacted some friends of mine that are in various and assorted FBOs that specialize on, in uh, our smaller airports or, or have a, a separate section that deals with uh, general aviation aircraft and is separate from the business aviation aircraft. And I just questioned, queried them on fuel sales. What are the trends are they seeing on the fuel sales? And a dramatic increase this year from last year. So comparing the pandemic cycle of fuel use for general aviation aircraft to what they're pumping today, in fact, they said uh, uh, two weeks ago, they, one of the FBOs had a uh, record number of, of AVGAS sales. Mm -hmm. So that looks like the flying is back very strongly, but how the pilots prepared. So I'm, I'm going to try to look and see if I can draw some lines. Now, certainly they're not going to be, what I'm going to pull up with is not going to be equal to what uh, an FAA or or somebody at that caliber would do with a paid staff and a lot of resources. Sure. I'm just looking for, for some common trends. Are there some issues in there that we can talk about that we can raise? You know, I love my uh, pre-flight planning and pre-flight uh, uh, inspections by the pilots, 
um, only because I've seen so many that that uh, haven't done a very good job. You know, and I, I uh, in, in a recent speech, I just mentioned that I, I took up after that crash in Bedford because it was in my backyard. I was there uh, that day and I was there the day after. The, uh, I started to look at what, what the pilots do for their pre-flights on some of these charter airplanes. And uh, I'm sorry to say that, it, that many, many, many of them were not very good. And also the use of the checklist. Right, because I was on, a, a, at times I could be on, a, on the second level of the facility and looking right down into the cockpit, I could see many, many pre-flights that were done without the benefit of a checklist. Yeah, so, yeah and I know I've done my, myself when I've gone out and started an airplane up to either check the engine or, or to uh, actually relocate it and start it up and taxi away. Uh, I used to do that so often that I, I very often didn't use a checklist. So I understand that. But at this point in time, with the flying uh, being so sparse in the last year, it's not the time to be doing that. It's time to yeah. be cautious. And you bring up a good point, John, about checklists and, uh, and the fact that, I mean, I had my Piper Comanche for better than 20 years. And, you know, I know what it said. I know what the checklist was because I wrote the checklist. I, I reorganized it, added some stuff. So I had committed to rote memory. But um, that being said, when you're doing multiple things, you know, either talking to passengers you may have on the airplane while you're trying to run a checklist, having somebody talking in your ear like ATC, um, having a line guy walk around and trying to give you a fuel slip or, you know, asking what you want to do, these little distractions get you off your game. And like you were talking about with uh, the business aviation and charter operators, um, we all have this level of tacit trust. Well, I just flew the airplane in here. I'm only been sitting on the ground for 30 minutes. What could have gone wrong with the airplane? It's not necessarily the fact that the airplane's sitting for that 30 minutes. It's what broke coming in and what's going to have an effect on you going out. And that's why it is so important, especially general aviation pilots. To, to do another thorough pre-flight prior to them, you know, getting ready to leave, even if they've flown in because something could have broke on the way in or it wasn't obvious when you took off at your, at your, uh, you know, uh, original departure point. And I've had that where I, I thought the airplane was good to go. I landed and when I was doing the refueling and watching the, uh, the fueler, um, I was checking the, uh, the fuel caps. I just happened to look over and see in the engine cowling a little bit of streaking oil. And I'm thinking, what's going on there? Because I didn't see that on the initial uh, pre-flight an hour before. Open up the, uh, the cowling. And of course, there is a little bit of an oil leak and, and it's, it's blowing out through the cowling. It's little things like that that you, you know, are going to catch your attention. And it's the difference really between, again, enjoying flying and not having a problem to using your extraordinary skills as a pilot to try and put, put an airplane down when you don't want to put an airplane down. So Yes. And the, just all that pre-flight stuff that's, that's just once over lightly. And let's not forget what happens when we have on the corporate side where you're waiting for your passengers for one, two, three, four hours. I think that uh, flight enhanced them. They were waiting for, they were on the ground for like five hours. 
They were back and forth to their airplane, sitting inside, coming in. They actually ordered a pizza and ate it on board the airplane. I mean, all of these things back and forth, back and forth. Well, you know, things happen. Yeah. I, I remember the, the crash, an airline crash I did in LaGuardia. Uh, yeah, I think it was 1989. And uh, someone had gotten into the airplane and moved the rudder trim all the way to one side. U.S. Air 5050. Yep. And, uh, Which is an appropriate name, by the way, and I'll tell you why when you're done. <laughs> and uh, in a way, the crew left, since it was a through flight, it wasn't an originator. They only did the abbreviated checklist, and they missed the rudder trim. And as they went down the, the chute, they more and more trouble keeping the airplane on the center line because they got full rudder deflection because of the trim was all the way over. And they didn't recognize it, and they tried to abort and went off the end of the runway just barely. All right, uh, one airplane left off the end of the runway, but the end of the runway was on a set of pilings, so you landed on the approach light pier, and it broke up yeah. the airplane and, and killed two people, and then so on and so on, uh, because of a very very simple mistake. And uh, we often see that in accidents, and we're going to talk about some of those. Uh, it's so, so uh, gut-wrenching on the part of the investigators that as you go through and you find an accident with fatalities, that, that it was preventable, that it was a people failure. And that's what we're seeing more and more of today. And when you look at a flight number like 50-50, I remember when that accident happened, I was with the NTSB and I started incorporating that 50-50 into a lot of my safety presentations. And that is, you know, if you're not willing to do a pre-flight on, you know, before every flight that you take, even if it is a through flight, you have a 50-50 chance of something yeah. bad happening. And you may get away with it the first time and you may get away with it the second time. Usually the third time's a charm. And, um, and I've always used that, that adage of 50-50. It's a crapshoot. And I'm not willing, especially if I've got people on board, I am not willing to take those odds in any way, shape, or form. Well, you know, is it an accident when you're careless? Is it an accident when you don't do a checklist or don't do something that we know has negative income outcomes to it? Right? Is it still an accident? You know, an accident is supposed to be a truly random event. But we know if you do a lousy pre-flight, sooner or later, it's going to come to an accident. So now it's not, it's a different kind of random event then. And, and, and again, you bring up a good point, John. You know, an accident has a different connotation than a crash. And, and I mean, I use the word crash a lot. I don't use words like accident because if a pilot does something knowingly or intentionally or carelessly or recklessly, it is not an accident. It is a crash. And it is an intentional act that they didn't do something that resulted in damage to the aircraft and injuries to, to themselves or, or people on board. So uh, we're going to have to have a discussion about that in a future show because words, as I've always preached it, words have meaning. And the context of those words uh, determine whether or not a pilot or uh, a mechanic or even a, a flight manager, that is somebody that runs a flight department, um, intentionally, unintentionally had some 
sort of uh, direct cause or contributing factor to an accident. So, and I know that Todd, <laughs> somebody had a cause or contributing factor to that little event involving a 737 <laughs> carrying a football team. You know, whenever you have a situation where a large jet airplane is tipping back on its tail when it shouldn't, this is the modern era. Everybody has cameras. And there was a nice little you know, viral event on the 17th of September where someone apparently in a nearby aircraft snapped a picture of a United 737, you know, reared up on its tail. USC football team was flying into Lewiston, Idaho to go play Washington State over in Pullman, Washington. And apparently during the unloading process, it wasn't done properly. And this is a 737-900. There has to be some sort of, what do you call it? A support or tail, tail stand. Tail stand. And uh, evidently, this wasn't the case. And if you look at the picture, you can see that the forward cargo door is open. A lot of baggage has been unloaded. And we're talking a football team. We're not talking about just skinny people here. So, you know, it's a ha-ha sort of story. Local news had some fun with it. But it brought up some other issues. One of them being there's been quite the history over the last few decades of sports teams having tragedies uh, when they came to charter flights. And of course, yeah. back in the 70s, Marshall University, it was a movie made of that. And more recently, Oklahoma State had two events not involving athletes, but involving uh, coaches, where on two separate events, one was in 2001, I believe the other was 2013, uh, several people were killed. And these weren't uh, Part 121 flights. In one case, it was, uh, it looks like a booster for the university, was flying some coaches in, in his private aircraft. And going back to that United event, uh, you might think, yeah, it's just reared back on its tail, no biggie. Well, I looked at Flight Radar 24. First, its a return flight was canceled, returned a couple days later to Los Angeles. It's been on the ground at least a week. And looking at the flights of the aircraft the previous week or two, it was a workhorse. It was doing several flights a day for United. So yeah. somewhere down the line, someone, whether in the cockpit or whether on the ground, did something that shouldn't have been done or missed a step. And as a result, this aircraft is out of revenue service for a week or more. Uh, it is a very expensive charter, uh, the kind of thing that, uh, you know, whether you're GA or running an airline, you'd like to avoid. So getting back to what John was saying and what you were saying, checklists and procedures, standardization, that's key. Doesn't matter if you're carrying a Division One football team or carrying groceries. You have to do this every time. Yeah, uh, you know, shortcuts eventually will catch up to you. And we've all seen it. We've all experienced it, not necessarily in aviation, but other things that we've done just in life. And, um, and the, of course, those are lessons to be learned. Um, look, at, look at that crash again in, at Hanscom. I mean, they went back on the voice recorder and they, I think they said the not, not uh, 173 previous times or out of 173 times, he only did the checklist three or four. I forget the exact numbers but it was ridiculously skewed in the wrong direction. Yeah. I mean, because we have a tacit, process. we have a tacit trust in ourselves. Yeah, I know it. I've been there. I've done this so many times, you know, you're flying as a crew with somebody that, you know, you're comfortable with there's you, you really lose that system of checks and balances that a checklist provides. And, you know, you just think, ah, you know, I've got it memorized and one missed item. Um, I think I've talked about it on a previous show. I did a uh, Convair 580 that was being operated by Republic Airlines. And this is when old Republic existed. 
they're flying out of Minneapolis, heading to Brainerd, Minnesota. And it was in the winter time and the crew was running a checklist. Flight attendant came up, opened up the door and was giving him the passenger count. And she interrupted them while doing a, uh, a checklist. They stopped. They acknowledged her presence. She said, yeah, we got 32 in the backseat on the other end, closed the door. They resumed their checklist where they thought they had left off. Well, they missed one key item on that checklist. Airplane takes off on this short flight, goes to altitude. The windshield gets cold soaked. And, and you know, John, you worked on these airplanes along with the Wright brothers, that the window on that airplane is about an inch and a half thick, the, the, the windscreen on that airplane pressurized aircraft, but it's an inch and a half thick. Well, they're up at altitude. They're descending into Brainerd on final approach and wham, they hit a duck, two pound duck on the captain's side, on the left side. It not only shattered that windscreen, but came through and hit the captain in the face that, that the remnants of that duck incapacitated him. And he was the flying pilot. The first officer had enough presence of mind to, uh, to continue and get the airplane on the ground to get, uh, get assistance to the captain. But when you go back and look at it, and I had to listen to the CVR several times, one missed item on a checklist, one. What do you think it was? Windshield heat. Windshield heat. And people go, so what about windshield heat? Well, as we know, flying airplanes that fly at high altitudes and you cold soak the aircraft, um, you know, including the windows, you want to temper that glass. That's, that's the way those windscreens are built is to temper the, uh, the glass and they have to be heated in order to do that. Since the windshield heat wasn't turned on, that windshield was cold soaked. So it became very brittle. So when that duck hit the window, it shattered it and came actually through. And that's why for general aviation pilots where distractions are a little more prominent, um, you, you really have to focus. So you want to brief passengers, hey, I've got to run this checklist or I've got to talk to ATC or whatever. Don't interrupt me. I'll be happy to talk to you when I'm done. But I don't want to, I don't want to get interrupted while I'm trying to run a checklist or, or copy a clearance or whatever. It's these little things. It's usually not big things that'll hurt you or kill you. And, um, and we, we constantly preach this all the time. So, yes. You know, the other thing is we've got a little bit of news. Uh, we understand through uh, some secret sources that there may be some changes at the NTSB and in, in the top ranks of management now that uh, the safety board has a new chairman. My understanding that uh, the managing director position is turning over and that uh, the uh, current director of Office of Aviation Safety may be moving up into that position to take the managing director's role and then they're going to take a, uh, an investigator um, in the lower ranks of uh, field investigations on the aviation side and move that person into the, uh, the director of office of aviation safety position that would be vacated by that particular person moving up to, uh, to the managing director role. Um, John, is that normal? I mean, we got a new chairman. She was uh, confirmed, what, a month or two months ago. Is it typical for a new chairman to come in and turn over the top ranks of, uh, of the safety board? As a, as a lowly investigator at the NTSB, I never paid attention until somebody said, okay, we got a new managing director, but I never really cared as to the politics of why do we have somebody new? Well, certainly every, every uh, leader of any team 
wants to have their own people uh, with them, somebody that they've chosen that would be uh, firmly on their team. So it is common uh, for them to make the changes when, it's, uh, when they can. They don't come in and fire the managing director or, or the general counsel who's also very close to the chairman. Uh, they don't do that. But when the opportunity uh, presents itself, you know, through replacements or promotions in other directions, uh, they will replace that person with somebody that they feel comfortable with. So I, I saw that uh, several times while I was there uh, through different uh, chairmen. I forget how many chairmen I served on, uh, four or five, but it was pretty common that they would, would uh, move those people around. Uh, sometimes they would move them uh, to a different department so they could create an opening for their own person to be the managing director. Mm -hmm. So that, so it's, it's uh, you know, you want your own person in some of those jobs. I, not, I always viewed it, I, wouldn't, I didn't want an, a yes man. You know, I had two people in my office, one of which was, I was very close to. I didn't want a, a, a yes man uh, there. I wanted somebody that would tell me that I was stupid, so. Uh, Todd, Todd, I'm glad that we're recording this show because we're gonna play that little clip back multiple times. John has opened himself up for you and I to tell him when he's stupid, didn't know what the hell he was talking about. We're going to take full advantage of that. Here, here. Yeah. I welcome it, actually. Of course, Todd, um, it, as much as it pains me to, uh, to now really talk about a significant issue, and it pains me dearly, trust me. Good. Good. We... <laughs> we <laughs> And it's just hard. I get choked up trying to find the right words. <laughs> but we are within, oh, what, several thousand miles of royalty. I am, I am very proud and honored to announce that our co-host, the Honorable, the Honorable, now, I use that word very loosely because some people think he's honorable. You and I both know he doesn't necessarily live up to that. But the Honorable John Golia has been selected as one of the National Aeronautic Association's statesmen of aviation. And what people don't understand is what, what kind of award is statesman of aviation? Well, this was an award that was created back in 1954 by the NAA or the National Aeronautics Association to recognize people who have basically given lifelong service um, to aviation with significant contributions. And it's given to people that are living, not deceased, so they can be honored for their commitment to aviation and their significant contributions. Uh, again, I'm, gra I'm grateful for that part. Yeah, living. I know. So am I. That's why when they said, you know, that I'm a living legend of aviation, I'm glad that I'm living and not a dead legend of aviation. So I always honor the living part as well. But uh, it is uh, it is definitely an honor uh, that well bestowed on you, John. You've done a lot in your uh, hundred and what is it? Hundred and six years. Um about the time, you know, you and the Wright brothers, I know that they were looking at the Wright brothers, but they selected you instead. So we're, uh, we're very honored 
to, uh, especially me, to have you not only as a co-host on this show, but uh, we've been extremely close friends for a long time, and I cherish that friendship. And I know that uh, you definitely keep me in check, and I appreciate that. But uh, you are an encyclopedia, wealth of knowledge, and, um, and you have contributed uh, lifelong service to this thing we call aviation. Here, here, and let me second that emotion. And one more thing. If you're anywhere in the aviation world and you have two choices, either to spend five minutes with John or a whole afternoon with uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, the world that you should be hanging out with is the good-looking one, Mr. Golia. Excuse me, the Honorable <laughs> John Golia. The Honorable. Now, because you hold that title, John, and you've held it since the NTSB, as I told you when I was with the NTSB, and I came into your office when you first became an appointed board member and I sat down in the chair and I said, yeah, you sit in this corner office and yeah, you are a presidential appointee, but I'm never going to work for you. And I'm never going to give you the honorable title of sir or your highness or your, <laughs> or your eminency or any of those other titles of respect. You're just John to me. That's what I want to be. Actually, yeah, I don't want I, even, even when I got the job at the NTSB, I did not want to forget where I came from. And fortunately, I have a large number of, of uh, maintenance friends who didn't let me forget where I came from. And fact, we get together uh, oftentimes, you know, a couple, three times a year, plus there's other events. There's one coming up next week that I'm not going to be able to attend. And it pains me not to attend it, but it also spares me the grief because that term, the honorable, once those guys grabbed hold of it, they just hammer me. They hammer every second, every one of them, hammer me with the honorable. Yeah, because we, we, know, we know what the definition of honorable is, and we know you. Yeah. And I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> Okay, enough of that. Enough, enough. Uh, it is uh, it is an honor to have you not only as a as a friend but as a colleague and, and a confidant. So, thank you for uh, for all your service to aviation and your contributions. So, yeah, we got a lot of work to do yet. Yeah. So it's, well, we're not done. I know the uh, the I know if the Wright brothers were alive, they would have given you the same appreciation for the help and guidance you gave them. So. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Oval taught me how to fly. What can I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> well, be, uh, I, I, I know. know that, I'm sorry, John. Go ahead. I I'm sorry. Transition to real the business. honorable John. Go ahead. I was going to transition to to an ongoing story because an email came in from uh, more than one of our with, with, uh, listeners that wants to talk about wants us to talk about. Uh, MH370, and to coincide, coincide with that, I, we actually had a number of emails from uh, friends of ours down in Australia, mainly 777 pilots, and actually we flew, you and I both uh, were in the simulator uh, flying the 737 with these guys, and uh, we had lots of discussions over this couple of days we were out there about 370, but interestingly, They've been, they've been banging on uh, the Australian government for two things. One is that, the, that they knowingly 
have been searching in the wrong area. They're a few hundred kilometers off from where most people believe it. They've supported it with a lot of work since they're multiple triple seven captains and they supported their positions with lots of analysis on the airplane and with it being flown to the ocean and not just run out of fuel and let it dive. And they also have recently put out a, uh, a uh, email that talks about their politicians and that uh, this, this wasn't an accident, it was a case of murder-suicide by the captain and that they, the Australian government was told that by the Malaysian prime minister. And if that's true, boy, that calls into question what the government of Australia was doing, spending $50 million of taxpayer money, uh, which hopefully they will reimburse by the Malaysian government for, but they spent a lot of money searching in an area that did a vast amount of, of information said the airplane was not there. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly raises a lot of uh, questions about the investigation and and how it was carried out and who they were trying to satisfy. So it's uh, it's a story ongoing, but apparently there's growing pressure now to move that investigation that's out in the ocean, a couple of hundred kilometers off offshore, uh, to a uh, a point further south. So. Well, uh, to be determined, on, to be continued on how far that goes, but it was certainly an eye-opener to see how far these 777 captains have, have gotten with the analysis and all of it. It's all over the, it's been all over the news in Australia. It's been uh, their equivalent of 60 Minutes had a program on it, and where one of the government officials uh, came right up to the edge of admitting that they knew from the Malaysian government that it was a murder-suicide. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's rather disappointing to find out that the accident investigation people in Australia uh, would have sat back and allowed this to happen. I don't know that that would have happened in the US. I think that uh, the NTSB is oftentimes a sieve of information sliding out and I would be surprised if someone had tried that in the U.S. that it didn't leak to the press, and it would have been major expose. Let me let me bring up a couple of points. One, you and I know very well one of these triple seven pilots, and and we've reached out to him to have him on the show, and he's agreed. It's just a matter of us trying to figure out a time that's going to be convenient, since he is in Australia. Either he's going to be talking to us in the middle of the night, his time, or we're going to be doing the, uh, the podcast in the middle of the night, our time. But I know that he will talk. I mean, it, it's going to be a multi-hour show as far as having him on the show to talk about all the work that has been done with regard to this event. Um, just when you and I were with him in, uh, in Seattle and we were talking, I mean, it was a very lengthy conversation, lots of detail. And I think that uh, our listeners will find it fascinating. It is a fascinating uh, uh, storyline. Now, 
I talked about this being an intentional act within a week after the event. Um, you and I have had this discussion within a week after the initial event because we've seen telltale signs of this. And all of the conspiracy theorists and all of the other talking heads that were on TV for months after the event who were trying to pin this on a problem with the airplane, an in-flight fire, which people have written books about that had no factual basis, but they were able to sell books to the unknowing. And even today, there are people that still want to make this some sort of mechanical issue. This airplane wouldn't have flown for seven hours if it was on fire, as people have basically made the storyline. Um, the airplane never left 35,000 feet, never dove down to 5,000 feet and zoom climbed up to 50,000 feet. All of that was debunked. Um, this was not a high speed impact. Um, it's, it's obvious because unlike uh, Air France 447, which was a high speed impact and we had a 70 uh, mile debris trail after that impact, we didn't have a 70 mile debris trail after MH370 hit the water. Have we seen bits and pieces and parts? Yeah, those are the frangible parts of the airplane. But for all intent and purposes, that airplane did not hit the water very hard um, and likely was, is, is still intact to this day, 22,000 feet deep in the deepest part of the Indian Ocean. And, and so there are a lot of storylines. I think the guys that we know that have been investigating this and really spent a lot of time with it are concerned about the lack of transparency in politics and how both of those have been pervasive and infiltrated a, 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 a process that we hold very dear to objectivity. And that because of that lack of transparency, withholding information, not really vetting some of the information um, these are the concerns. These are the concerns that this group has in trying to get to the bottom line. I mean, for them to admit, you know, this was a, a murder suicide. Great. You and I talked about this. I talked about it on TV two, three, four days after the event. Why? It has a telltale sign to us investigators. Now, why the Australians became the forefront of the investigation. If you remember, there was a transition from the Malaysians being the face of the investigative process, doing the press conferences, then there seemed to be a transition and the Australians took that lead role. Of course, that created a lot of conspiracy. Why is somebody else doing this? Where are the Chinese since there were so many Chinese nationals on that airplane? All of these have led to multiple storylines. And what the guys that we know have been trying to do is cut through all of that mud to get to a transparent story. And, um, and they've been trying to hold people accountable and storylines accountable and vet storylines. And I think uh, when, I mean, when we can get this coordinated, uh, I think our listeners are gonna find it fascinating because we're gonna hear stuff that really, unless you're in that inner circle, really has not appeared in any kind of news media. And unlike the typical conspiracy theories, I think, based on what I know of, uh, of the guy that uh, has been leading this and, and we're on his email chain, these aren't just hocus pocus pet theories because somebody you know, has twisted the facts. 
these guys have vetted a lot of these facts and, and uncovered facts that uh, that nobody really considered throughout the last five years. So um, it's it, I think it'll be a fascinating uh, podcast that I definitely believe that it'll take two or three podcasts to really get all the good information from them. And I think that uh, it'll put a lot of, uh, of things in perspective. You and I, we have complained um, on past shows and, of course, offline as well with regard to there is no place in acts investigation for politics. And, 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 you know, we see that getting, you know, a little bit of, of traction every once in a while. Um, and of course, uh, I think there's going to be some politics. You and I aren't going to talk about it on the show, um, for a variety of different reasons, but what's going on currently with the 737 max and the former, uh, chief test pilot for uh, for Boeing, who's been indicted or is going to be indicted um, or has been indicted, um, things like that, you know, all have political overtones. The biggest question is, do these political overtones really benefit aviation and aviation safety, or do they just serve as a distraction to take people, you know, in a different direction away from the real issues? Before we uh... Uh, leave MH370 entirely. There's a couple of things that uh, when you were talking, that came to mind. Of course, like the two of you, I was involved in front of the camera doing interviews from the very beginning. And one of the things that struck me in the latter part of the investigation, when they had narrowed down the scope of where they're searching in the ocean, was the size of the search area. And I said to myself, okay, I can say square miles or square kilometers. Let me give the people something they can actually relate to. And the search area toward the end was as big as the U.S. state of Pennsylvania or the country of North Korea. Now, I've never been to North Korea, but I've been across Pennsylvania. Something the size of a 777, if it landed relatively intact in Pennsylvania somewhere, what's the likelihood of it's 22,000 feet underwater you can find that darn thing? And on the conspiracy side, I say there's a plenty of conspiracies that went on. Not necessarily conspiracy of whodunit, but conspiracies of, well, gee, after this has happened, how can we maneuver ourselves to uh, have plausible deniability and look good? Now, here's one that's on the good side. Very early on, there was a search area in the South China Sea between Australia and, uh, and, and, and Vietnam. And before there was an official change of direction as to where the search would be, the U.S. naval contingent that was out in the South China Sea went in a different direction. And I thought to myself, they wouldn't be doing that unless they know something they haven't really released to the public. Now, we have a situation where the U.S. has intelligence infrastructure in place that no other country has. We also have a situation where the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand and the U.K. have an ongoing intelligence consortium going on. So were, were there some secret satellite intel that uh, sort of like gave the U.S. an insight as to what was going on? Let's say that's true. Does it have an effect on what happened afterwards? Would it have an effect on how the Malaysians reacted in the early part of this where they were taking the lead? Would it have any effect on how the Australian government would do things? I don't know, but uh, there's plenty of opportunity here to pick apart whether or not this process, as you said, Greg, whether this was affected by politics or a little bit less uh, ominous 
by policy yeah. rather than politics. Yeah, and and again, there <laughs> there is so much backstory and and you know shadow stories. That's that's where it really lies. When you think about okay, let's say it is murder suicide. What was the motive? What was the reason? I've I've heard a number of different reasons why possibly um, this this pilot, presumably the captain, um, took this airplane down or did what he did with it. But again, nobody's really vetted any of that, despite all the information. You don't just wake up in the morning, or at least I wouldn't think you wake up in the morning and go, okay, today I'm going to get in this airplane and I'm going to take it out to 22,000 feet, you know, or take it out to the middle of the Indian Ocean and crash it in 22,000 feet of water. Um, whether they actually find the airplane or not, I doubt very seriously. And the only reason I say that is in that part of the world, exactly in the middle of, uh, of the uh, Indian Ocean, the terrain on the bottom of the ocean is like our Rocky Mountains. <clears throat> there are mountains that are towering underwater. Um, again, if the airplane stayed intact and went in, even if the engines came off, the airplane is still going to fly. It's fluid dynamic. So the airplane will fly through 22,000 feet of water. So it could have hit in one spot and literally flown for miles away from where it initially impacted the water. If it ends up in this Rocky Mountain area underwater and it gets in a crevasse, are you going to be able to distinguish the airplane from rocks, mountains down underneath water with side scan sonar, ROVs, or anything else? And then two, my understanding, based on the research I've done, there's 2,000 feet of silt on the bottom of the ocean down there. So let's say the airplane settles into that. It's going to sink into that silt and then get covered up, just engulfed in that, in that silt. Will you ever find it? Do we have the technology that could actually identify something like that, even if we are looking in the right areas? All of these are questions that need answers, some of which may have already been answered but has not been made public. So I think once we, uh, when, once we set this uh, show up with the guys in Australia, we may get some of the answers to these questions. Before, John, you end the show, I'd like to counter what Greg just said. I think you're absolutely wrong. I think this airplane will be found. I'm absolutely confident of that. I'm also confident of the following. I don't know if it's going to be next week or given that we're recording this show in 2021, when they do find this, will anyone listening to the show this year be alive? Or will we have been dust in the wind for a thousand years by the time they find this airplane? I don't know. Well, I, okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll buy into that. It took us 112 years to find the Titanic, and we knew exactly <laughs> where it was. So, I mean, yes, it, okay, I, I don't think it will never to the, to the absolute term of never, but with current technology and, and what we know now and that kind of thing, I, I don't see that airplane. I would love to see it. I don't believe that it'll be found in my lifetime. I hope I'm wrong. No, I think it will be found in, in your lifetime. You got, you got a bunch of years on me. I'd like to see it found in mine because I'd like to get the answers. Yeah, well, you know, when you live hard and fast, John. <laughs> well, I was told early on that alcohol is a great preservative. So I've made sure to keep that level up. 
Yeah, I know. I, I scotch is my formaldehyde, so it's <laughs> it keeps me well preserved. So. I like my wine red and my Johnny Walker blue. There you go. We like it. Well, I think uh, we've beat all of these issues to death today. Um, but again, I think the the biggest thing with this show is the fact that uh, we are uh, in the presence of greatness with one of our co-hosts. And so, again, we congratulate you, John, on your award. It's well-deserved. And um, you're actually going to be formally recognized at the NAA's uh, presentation on December 6th of this year. So uh, we look forward to that. And uh, I guess I'm going to have to make a guest appearance so I can heckle you at least. Somebody's got to give you some grief. Yes, that's your job. Yep. That's your job. Well, why don't uh, why don't you close us out with uh, with our sponsors? And as I always do, I'm going to leave you with the last words. Okay, folks. I want to remind everybody that the show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco, the number one insurer of general aviation airplanes and personnel. So if you need health insurance, you need liability insurance of any kind, you need a personal uh, liability if you're a, a flight instructor, give them a call, you know, and let's not forget you get a 5% discount on top of everything else if you just mention you listen to the show. So give them a call, 888-879, and I forgot the number. Come on. You've, see, it's kind of like checklist, John. You know, I opened I open my checklist, 888-879-0389. So give them a call. Again, great people. I know I introduced myself to them firsthand out at Oshkosh. Todd and I spent the better part of two days in their booth. And uh, very impressive bunch of people. So, and as far as the last word, I'll do what I always do. Please, if you're going to go fly your airplane and you haven't done it for a long time, fly with somebody who has, somebody that's current, and do a first-class pre-planning session before you take off, including what if you lose an engine on takeoff, you know, whatever. Do a good pre-planning and then do a very thorough pre-flight. You know, very important, every aspect from the tires all the way up to the top of the tail. Make sure you take a good look at your airplane and inspect what you can. It means a lot to you and your passengers. You, uh, you, brought, up, you brought up tires, John. And the big thing with, uh, with tires being part of the pre-flight is I'm going to tease our next show. We're going to be dissecting the Lear 60 that crashed in South Carolina, where a lot of the event started with tires. And, um, and so you definitely want to tune into that because, again, as benign as it may sound with tires, it caused a catastrophic event that, uh, that killed four people. So um, definitely tune in. So it's a good, with that, yeah, it's a good example of the, the maintenance and the pilot uh, cooperation that was lacking yep so well then i will say it since i know that you're done and that is uh you can always reach us by email at uh flight safety detectives 
at gmail.com. We appreciate your emails. We appreciate your input. And um, as I've said it before, and we've just been a little neglectful, uh, we will get to, uh, to emails because we definitely want to recognize our listeners and some of their suggestions and comments, good, bad, or indifferent about the show. So we will be doing that um, as soon as uh, I get a little bit of time and John gets a little bit of time as well. And then, of course, as we always conclude our show, and John is always preaching, if you're going to fly, fly safe.